Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Social interactions play an essential role in the lives of many animals. And in some species, like capuchin monkeys and humans, these interactions can become highly complex. But how does sociality evolve? And how do we disentangle genetic and non-genetic influences on sociality? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today, as we hear from one of the authors behind the recent heredity paper, Genetic, Maternal and Environmental Influences on Sociality in a Pedigreed Primate Population. And just as a heads up, we did have to re-record a small part of this interview. So if you hear a slight shift in tone about two-thirds of the way through, that's why. Can you please introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, so my name is Irene Godoy. I'm a primatologist and I'm a behavioral ecologist. I'm currently an Alexander von Humboldt postdoctoral researcher based in Germany at the University of Bielefeld in their animal behavior department. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here to talk about your new paper. And I wondered to start, if you could tell us broadly what it's about. Yeah. uh, So the last 20 years or so, there have been quite a lot of studies coming out in mammals and particularly in primates that show that individuals that are more social tend to also either live longer or their offspring have better survivorship or there's uh, some sort of link with biological fitness. And so a natural question that kind of follows from finding those results over and over is, well, what's leading to all this variation? If variation in sociality matters, then why are some individuals more social while they have counterparts that are more socially isolated in the same group? And that's what this project came out of, that sort of curiosity. And what I wanted to do was try to partition out, you know, what this variation, how much of it is explained by genetic influences versus non-genetic influences. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very good paper. And I guess before we get into the details of it, a lot of people right now might be thinking in terms of like the old nature versus nurture debate. So what is the sort of current thinking about how sociality and behavioral traits emerge? Well, I think, fortunately, for most people that study social behavior now, Uh, we don't dichotomize it anymore. We don't think of whether it's nature or nurture. We expect that it's both. And then sometimes what's interesting to us is to know the relative contribution of one or the other. And so it's not surprising to find that genes play a role or that environments play a role. It's generally more of a matter of, well, maybe in some cases one is more important than another, depending on your question. But we do expect that both things are important. Mm, Yeah. And I'm really curious as to what motivates you in this area of research. Like, why is it a topic that you find interesting? I've been interested in social development for a long time. And actually, I had applied for a grant to study how mothers influence the social behavior of their offspring. And I was quite interested in looking at that direct link. And I think that's a really important question in mammals because mothers are so important for the survival and development of their infants because they provide protection and nourishment. But when I applied for this grant, I got a reviewer comment about, wait a minute, but if you find that 
offspring resemble the mother, how do you know that that's from a social influence and not a genetic influence? And I thought, wow, that's a great question. I can't because I haven't thought about how to tease those apart. And that led me to collaborating with a researcher at the University of Bielefeld, Peter Corsten, who does quantitative genetics. And so I came more with expertise from the social behavior aspect, and then I could work with people who knew more about figuring out the genetic side of things. And so that's really how this came about. I had not previously been so into understanding the genetic components, but to really understand social influences, you have to know that too, because what you think is social might be genetic, and what is genetic also could be social. So you really have to look at those things together in the same models. Yeah, definitely. It's a very interesting area of study. And that kind of brings us nicely into this paper that you recently published in Heredity. So what was it in this study that you were specifically trying to investigate? What were your aims here? Well, uh, so the primary aim, I guess, was to try to figure out the relative influence of genetic and the non-genetic influences on sociality. So from the uh, non-genetic side, so looking at how important environmental factors were or how important the social environment was in determining variation in sociality. And it was sort of trying to figure out in a whole picture, we, we expect all of these things to be important, but figuring out what their relative importance was, was, I guess, the major focus of the paper. So it's a very cool set of aims, and it's a very interesting topic, obviously. And I know that you use this incredible data set from this really sort of social primate. So how did you compile this data, and what did you actually do with it? Yeah, so I have the fortune of being able to work with Susan Perry, who runs the Lomas Barbudal Monkey Project out of UCLA. Now, Susan has studied wild capuchins for over 30 years now. And uh, we've studied this one population in great detail. And it's from one social group to up to 14. And so we had all of this social data because that's something that's always been of interest to Susan. So we managed to get spatial association data from 376 different individuals. Now, I liked using this data set because it's probably the most common type of data collected across different studies of animals because a lot of study sites use sort of the same methods to collect data, so group scans and focal sampling. And a lot of the time we do these instantaneous samples where we record the identity of a monkey and importantly, who they're in proximity to at that moment. And so it's a kind of data that we have on all individuals in the population. And that really helps when you're trying to do this sort of longitudinal study on a particular behavior that you sample the entire population. And so that's what we use for this study. And we had 20 years worth of this data. Um, and I think that was really the very exciting part while I was writing up this paper, realizing how rare it is to actually use such an expansive data set. Yeah, for sure. And the, I guess the other side is also that we had this amazing behavioral data set, but we also had this great very complete pedigree. Because since 1990, when the population started being studied by Susan, uh, we don't have many gaps in genotyping. So we actually know how individuals are relatedness. Susan was always interested in who the fathers were of individuals. And so we know the relatedness for most members uh, or dyads in the population. And that gave us a lot of power then to be able to figure out, well, if there's variation in relatedness in the population, how does that affect variation in phenotypes that we have? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is a dream uh, sample set. Yeah, so capuchins are a long-lived species, and so in captivity, they live up to 50 years. And then our field site's only been going for 30 years, but we do suspect that a lot of our individuals can live well into their 30s. And so that's one of the reasons it was quite important to also have so much data across the lifespan to get a better idea of how consistent behaviors are across the entire lifespan and the long-lived species. You do need essentially decades of information to try to tackle that. Our field site's only been going for 30 years, but we do suspect that a lot of our individuals can live well into their 30s. And so who knows what we'll learn after 40 or 50 years, because then we'll actually be covering the potential entire lifespan of, of capuchins. Mm, fantastic. And I guess if people want to know the sort of ins and outs of all the analyses, they're in the paper, but what were you finding in terms of the evolution of social traits? So sort of related to the data set itself, one thing that was important was that when comparing our study to other studies that have been done before, most studies on this type of uh, social behavior or understanding how important genetic versus non-genetic influences are. Most of these studies on repeatability are based on short-term observations. So most studies span only up to one year. So that could be a very short part of an organism's lifespan. And so what was, uh, I think, remarkable in this data set was that a third of our subjects, we had data from at least 10 different years. And so I think one important thing about this study is that it helps us generalize more in our understanding of, of social behavior across the lifespan, because that's what we're really representing in this study, all age groups, essentially, for as long as basically they were in our study population. So our findings are generally in line with what other people have found. I mean, the social behavior is modestly repeatable, we say, and that's like a jargon term. It's actually hard to figure out what that means. I've tried <laughs> to pin it down. Um, but um, I think typically if you find that more than 10% of the variation is explained by something, it's modestly explained by that. Uh, so let's just say that. So our general findings were that, well, okay, are there consistent differences among individuals in the population? Yes, we found that. So if we look at an individual's propensity to be around other monkeys, so whether they're social or alone, we find that among individual differences explain about a third of the variation in the behavior. So that's quite a lot. Now, group of residents, so the social group that individuals find themselves in also explain quite a large proportion of the variance. So you're finding, again, not surprising, it's probably what you should expect is that the social environment matters a lot, but also the fact that the data is coming from different individuals matters quite a lot. Because we have this data across the lifespan, we can look at, well, are the differences consistent across the years? And we do find that. And that's important because these consistent differences across years, if a behavior is heritable, that's what's possibly explaining that consistency. And we do. If we look at the long-term repeatability and ask what's explaining that, we find that it seems to be that there's additive genetic effects. That's a bit jargon again, but it just means that the variation in relatedness in the population is accounting for a lot of the variation and repeatability in the population. So most of the long-term repeatability is due to additive genetic effects. So there is a, a signal of heritability in the population. So there's a potential for the population to respond to selection on these behavioral traits. Mm, fantastic. I don't know how granular you went with some of this stuff, but were any behavioral traits particularly stand out in regards to their genetic heritability or anything along those lines? 
Well, we only looked at two different measures of spatial association. The models were pretty complex to run, and so we had really limited to data that we had a lot of on a lot of individuals. And so the two behavioral measures we had was just when we saw an individual, did they tend to be alone or around other monkeys? And then a very similar measure was, okay, when we saw an individual, how many other monkeys did it tend to be around? And both measures were repeatable, and both measures were modestly heritable. So um, in both cases, the long-term repeatability, at least, was predominantly still explained by additive genetic effects. Um, So with wild populations, it can be tricky to separate social and genetic influences on behavior. That's because close relatives often live in the same place, so they share genes, but also often the same social environment, even the same physical environment. So basically, it's just tricky when individuals that share genes also share common environments. But it turns out that capuchins are pretty great if you want to try to account for shared environments, and that's for a few reasons. For one, their mating system. So there's really high male reproductive scoon capuchins where alpha males basically monopolize reproduction in their groups. And these males can also stay alpha for quite a long time, 10 years, 14 years, 18 years. And in this kind of system, what you end up with is a lot of paternal siblings. And that's really great because you have siblings that share high relatedness, but they don't have the same necessarily early social environment because they're raised by different mothers. The skew also means that you have a lot of maternal siblings that are really interesting because some end up being full siblings and some are maternal half siblings. And you have so a shared maternal environment, but different degrees of relatedness because some are full and some are maternal half siblings. So it's just great to have the system where not all of the very close relatives share the same parental environments. And just like even to add to how cool the capuchins are, so the males eventually typically disperse and often they we're really happy they disperse to a nearby group and then we can continue following them. But now we have paternal half siblings, for example, that are in different social groups even. So all of these things kind of come together and really make Capuchin's a great study system for quantitative genetics because, of course, we've got all these close relatives, but they're not confined necessarily to the same group, the same social rearing conditions, and certainly not to the same set of parents. So that's really exciting. Yeah, for sure. And I guess a lot of people listening might be wondering how this study might relate to, say, human behaviors or other social mammals. So what do you think that this paper can tell us more broadly about sociality evolution? Yeah, I like that you bring up mammals because one of the findings that I think I was a bit surprised for and most people find surprising is that maternal effects were quite small. And what we mean by maternal effects in this study is just that how similar are maternal siblings in their phenotypes. And we actually find that that's quite low. And most of the time, I think because we know how important the mother-offspring bond is and that it can be quite prolonged in many mammal species, we in our minds tend to expect that there are larger maternal effects and higher similarity amongst maternal siblings. But yeah, that's not the case here. And actually, that finding is in line with what we generally find in repeatability studies. So uh, previous meta-analyses had shown that, yeah, maternal effects tend to be much smaller than additive genetic effects. 
So even though it's, I guess that's the finding you should expect, but it's still, I think, usually surprising for people that study primates because we know the mo- mothers matter quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. But still, the sibling, maternal siblings don't necessarily look very similar to each other in terms of behavioral phenotypes. Mm, yeah, it's it's very, very interesting. And with kind of that in mind, with the interesting thing of you coming to the study, not necessarily even thinking about the genetic side in its original form, I wonder what you think the sort of key take-home message in this paper is for other people who might be studying sociality. Yeah, I, I think the main things are that, you know, the environment matters. Hmm. The physical and social environment, but also the genetics matter too. And so it's uh, it's not a matter of one or the other. We have to analyze these things together because I think most of us, when we're studying an organism, we're more interested in the genetic contributions to a behavior or we're more interested in social transmission, social learning of behaviors. But it's a richer picture to have these things together to get an idea of the whole picture. And so I think it's a a great idea for people to not be afraid of quantitative genetic approaches. I mean, I I came to it not being an expert in this field, but I worked with experts in it. And so it was a great collaboration. And I think the understanding we gained from that is so much richer because of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is a very interesting paper and it's a very impressive paper in terms of its scope as well. And hopefully people will now go and give it a read. And just to finish up, I wonder if you could just remind us what your paper is called, but also tell us about your co-authors and everyone else who's been involved in bringing this to us, because I imagine there's quite a lot of people. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with the title. So the paper is Genetic, Maternal and Environmental Influences on Sociality in a Pedigree Primate Population. And my co-authors were Peter Corsten, who is an expert in quantitative genetics based in uh, the University of Bielefeld, and Susan Perry, who is a well-established primatologist who runs the Lomas Barbuda Monkey Project. And a huge, huge, huge thank you is also owed to Linda Vigilant. She's a long-term collaborator of the Lomas Barbuda Monkey Project, and she runs basically all the genetic analyses so far out of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining me and telling us all about this really exciting study. Thank you so much. Thanks to Irene. You can find her paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, Drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 